I am here to Ty Lopez with Mr. Daniel Lieberman, Professor Lieberman. Thanks for joining us from uh, Cambridge. Good old Harvard's uh, Harvard alumni. Did you go to Harvard? Uh, I did indeed. Cool. So we're talking about one of my favorite books uh, and a book that I think, more importantly than being my favorite, I think it's an important book. It's called The Story of the Human Body. Evolution, Health, and Disease. It's been listed for about the last year on my top 150. Thanks for coming. Oh, it's, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thanks so much for asking to talk to me. Yeah, there, well, there's so much. I mean, I like to just dive in right to the good part at the beginning, eat the dessert first. So the takeaway that I got, I always try to get one golden nugget uh, from a book, and the goal, the nugget I guess that I got is that there's this map to our body that's almost you could say predestined throughout evolution, and it's in our DNA. And most of the health problems that we have come from not a lack of willpower, not a lack of you know, it's not just one thing, it's not just sugar or just one thing, it's not following that overall map, whether it's how we move, how we sit, how we eat, how we choose. Does that sound like a fair synopsis? It's probably not the most scientific, but in layman's terms? Well, um, I mean, I think um, I, 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 would, I would amend that very slightly. I mean, I, I think the, the point is that our bodies, did, weren't, they weren't designed. Um, they evolved, and um, they evolved for all kinds of different reasons all kinds of different functions, uh, only one of which is to be healthy. Um, and, um, and we have to understand, um, you know, an evolutionary perspective helps us understand why our bodies are the way they are, but it also helps explain why, um, why sometimes things go wrong and why we get sick and why, why, we, um, why we're doing such a poor job of uh, preventing ourselves from becoming sick. And that's really the, that was the, that was the focus of the book, really, that, that I was, I wanted to try to understand, you know, how an evolutionary perspective helps us do a better job of not only understanding our bodies, but also um, staying healthy. There's a quote you said in the book, we didn't evolve to be healthy, but instead we were selected to have as many offspring as possible under diverse, challenging conditions. As a consequence, we never evolved to make rational choices about what to eat, or how to exercise in conditions of abundance and comfort. That's kind of what you were just saying. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think it's one of the, it's, 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 it's sometimes that, that, that statement, you know, the idea that we didn't evolve to be healthy really causes some people to, to be a little startled and alarmed because, you know, that, you know, we have this assumption that somehow, um, um, you know, if we only just did as our, as our genes told us to do, uh, we would, we would, we would be healthy. You know, that's really the idea behind the paleo diet, for example. If we just eat like our ancestors, uh, we, we won't get sick. And the fact of the matter is that's not true because our ancestors also got sick. Right. Um, and, and, they, and they didn't evolve, you know, to be healthy. They evolved to have as many offspring as possible. And sometimes health helps you do that, but not always. Right. So returning to quote-unquote nature isn't always the answer because... Returning to nature is not always in your individual self-interest. It might be in the interest of your four, your great-grandchildren, but it might not be in your best interest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, natural selection doesn't really have any interest. It just happens. Um, 
the relative number of offspring that you or I have um, affects um, which of our genes get passed on, and um, and if some of our genes have an influence on how many offspring go from one generation to the next, then that's natural selection. It, it just happens. There's no intent. There's no purpose. There's no there's no design. It just happens inexorably, like gravity and anything else. Just, just that's not a message people it. love to hear. At least not in the U.S. Probably not most of no, the planet. It no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a disturbing message. It's actually one of the reasons that Darwin was so um, uh, hesitant to publish The Origin of Species. He, because that's that's really the most, if anything, the most disturbing aspect of the theory of natural selection. That, that, that evolutionary change requires no agency. It just happens. So... One of the practical things that I took away from the book, you said, there's a quote where you go, there's nearly universal consensus that we should prohibit selling and serving alcohol to minors because wine, beer, and spirits can be addictive and when used to excess, ruinous for their health. Is excess sugar any different? So that's another, you're going from one uh, controversial conversation to another here. (laughs) Yeah, well... You, you know, might have a contract on your head from uh, some food companies. Uh, well, you should have seen. I, I wrote an I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about you know the Bloomberg sugar uh, sugar ban, uh, the the big gulp ban, and I got quite a lot of. You should have seen my inbox after that. But you know the thing is that um, we are asked today to make all kinds of choices we never evolved to make. Um, right. And um, um, you know when you have a an escalator next to a stairway, I mean who doesn't know that you, we should. They, they should take the stairway, right? But it's a natural desire. It's a natural instinct to, to hop on the escalator because it makes your life easier, and, um, and, and most of us do that. In fact, about 96%, 97% of humans are, will take the escalator rather than the stairway when they're offered a choice. And the same is true of, you know, uh, sugary things. I mean, I, I, I'm no different. When I, uh, when I go to a restaurant and they put that dessert in front of me, I, have a, I can't resist it. I'm, I, my every instinct, every impulse... My fast brain tells me to go for it, and um, and we we all need help uh, acting in our own best self interest sometimes, and uh, and and that means that um, that we need to help each other, and and that's really a political question. Right, right. That brings the whole philosophy of who then do you remove escalators? Do you remove Coca Cola from elementary schools? And uh, I like the point though. We're already doing it on some things like alcohol. And alcohol, in some ways, it, it might be less deadly than sugar. I mean, yeah, not like that you that. would want to have alcohol in schools, but a little bit of wine <laughs> in France, they give that to their 12-year-olds. Uh, a lot better to have that than to have Snickers and you know Coca-Cola all day. Right. I mean, I think the, the issue is, is not that, you know, is, is, you know uh, obviously I'm not a dictatorial person and I don't believe that we should prevent people from having dessert or sugar or, or for that matter alcohol and if people want to smoke go ahead they should do that I'm not um, uh, but the, the problem is that uh, you know some of these things some of these uh, these aspects of our environment uh, we're very well, ill-equipped to to, uh, to self-regulate uh, particularly children and um, so if, a, if an adult wants to smoke or you know, guzzle down vast amounts of sugary beverage, you know, uh, who am I to stop them? But a child can't really make rational decisions in the same way. And I think in that case, we have a, uh, I think there's an ethical as well as a, a you know, a, a, a moral um, argument to be made.
and you could argue ethically, since we have somewhat Obama universal health care, that I don't want to have to support an, even an adult that drinks big gulps all day and then goes and drives up health care. But we won't go into that. That This talk, I tend to stay <laughs> away from politics and religion. <laughs> Let me ask you, one of the best, one of my favorite parts of the book was your talk or your, your pages on sleep. So basically what I took away, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that uh, we didn't necessarily evolve, well clearly we didn't evolve to sleep like we sleep now, where we have lights. I lived at the Amish when I was younger for two and a half years, so the Amish go to bed. The best I've ever felt in life is uh, there was an Amish couple, they were 90 years old, and they stuck, I I ended up staying with them for a month, and they went to bed at 7 p.m., exactly when the sun went down. And uh, got up at about 3.45, and I've never just experienced your eyes just open. There's no grogginess. You wake up. You match the circadian rhythm, and that's broken, obviously. But the other thing you talked about is one phase where you just try to do a straight eight hours of sleeping without ever sleeping again. And you you talked about things like how our ancestors uh, napped and things like that. Can you talk a little on what you found kind of in your research and what you wrote about that? Yeah, I mean, sleep today is one of the strangest things about our lives. <clears throat> Even though we do so much of it, we we don't do it in a way that um, that's that's very natural. Uh, as you mentioned, um, <clears throat> we um, um, you know not many people nap anymore. Um, but napping is actually used to be probably a human universal. Um, everybody napped. Um, in addition, um, you know, we if you watch television, you know, you, at late at night you'll see all these advertisements for you know medications for insomnia. And the idea is that if you wake up in the middle of the night, somehow something's wrong with you. Well, actually, it's perfectly normal to wake up in the middle of the night um, and, you know, just go back to sleep again. But we now live in this world where we've been told that's somehow pathological. And um, I think the hardest part is that we have now this vicious cycle where we get very stressed because of our lives. You know, we commute, uh, our jobs. I mean, who knows what makes us stressed? That elevates cortisol and various other hormones of stress. That harms our sleep, which and then in turn makes us more stressed and prevents us from sleeping. So we get caught in this vicious cycle. And then finally, you know, um, we evolved to sleep on hard mattresses, you know, not even on mattresses, and just hard, you know, maybe just a, a, a you know a, a, a piece of fur on you know on the floor, in kind of a jumble with all the noises around us and the in basically camp conditions. Right. And now we go to sleep in these dark, quiet rooms, and we've got these super, you know, efficient blinds to make sure there's no light that gets in, and we and we and we um, and we can make the room super quiet. And that may also affect how we sleep because the initial stages of sleep, your brain is actually semi-conscious and it's monitoring the world out there. And and it may be that the uh, we have ancient adaptations that actually, you know, uh, to to listen for those sounds, the hyenas in the distance, the lions, etc to let you know that you can go into a deep sleep as opposed to not a, not so deep a sleep. And then, of course, finally, we have lights and television and laptops and bed and you know, all kinds of things that just prevent us from sleeping as much as we used to and add it all up, and, and we're pretty screwed up in terms of sleep. Uh, we don't get enough, and, we, and it's not very good quality. Do you think, so going back to this line of thinking of that the old way isn't necessarily the better way, so we have to find, you know, Paleo isn't necessarily better just because our ancestors ate all meat. Could we? And so, 
obviously that would apply to sleep. We got to pick and choose. Do you think that the science matches up? Have you find, found research that says yes, it's uh, health is correlated somehow with sleeping with a little bit of noise, maybe some white noise machine, and maybe uh, being okay with waking up only sleeping six hours straight and then going out and doing some work and then taking an hour nap later. Have you seen some modern studies? Have you guys done anything at Harvard or kind of... Well, I'm not myself a sleep researcher, but um, uh, I think that the the, the literature on sleep that takes an evolutionary perspective, I think, is really a long way to go. Um, And I think... so to answer to your questions, I don't really know of any, I mean, you know, I, I've never heard of any, any data which suggests that anything other than what's really important is just getting enough sleep. Right. Total <laughs> cumulative hours. The majority of sleep researchers are, 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 are concerned with this sort of, uh, you know, how stress interferes with sleep and then how lack of sleep then causes stress. Um, and, um, you know, I, but... To be honest, what I think that the biggest concern really I have is that so often when people have sleep disorders, um, rather than treating the root cause of the disorder, right, which is usually stress, we tend to find try to find ways to treat the symptom or treat it at a, at a, at a superficial level. And 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 you know, sure there are people who have serious sleep disorders sometimes, and and um, and that that's a serious condition, but the vast majority of people who have have sleep disorders. Yeah, it's because they're stressed. Right. It's kind of like depression. A lot of people are depressed exactly. because that's a signal from their brain that their life is not on you know the proper track. So then you go and take medications and cover it up instead of just going, okay, well, maybe I'm depressed because I hate my job, I hate my wife, or I hate my blah, blah, blah. Now, exactly. You know, I'm not getting enough exercise, and you know, the list goes long. It's very long. And, and, um, and, and, you know, we, and we, we just, as a, as a society, we're just very, very bad about dealing with the symptoms versus you know, the causes of problems. And we, and we typically, so often, we, we go right for the symptom and, and get ourselves caught in this positive feedback loop. I wonder if it's because, you know, my theory on why we take the easy route. I was reading a book, uh, her name, I think she's a professor at Columbia, or her name's Halverson. She's written a whole bunch of books. And she says, we basically are cognitive misers. And from an evolutionary standpoint, I'm pretty good friends with Dr. David Buss. I don't know if he's written a lot on evolutionary psychology. There, there's a adaptive reason why we don't think things through. It's because it takes a lot of glucose and takes energy to do deep thinking, and it didn't make sense to use a lot of glucose on logic when we lived on the African savanna, uh, you know, eons ago. So we basically take the easy route out. So if there's an escalator versus a stairs. Which one burns up more energy? Obviously the stairs, so we don't do it. If there's two choices, which one being, uh, you know, think through something deeply and take the the path that might have a lot of upfront pain, like not eating sugar, we tend to eat sugar. If you go to the gym, you're not going to go to the gym. And that's, do you think we will find a solution for that? Because almost everything that you need to do has upfront. I call it the investor mentality. Very few people are investors. You know, Warren Buffett started at seven and was able to go on a slow track, steady, slow and steady, accumulate a lot of money, not spend it on the things that most people were spending it on. But the vast majority of people 
they're not going to do that. They're going to spend the money when they get it. And Ameri the U.S. savings rate is at 2%. So you see it whether it's in health, you see it, you see it in wealth, you see it with relationships, you know, dating websites. My friend just sold his dating website to Match.com for $550 million, plenty of fish. But dating websites create the same thing where now people are inundated with choices that they didn't have. So people get paralyzed by the, by the abundance of choice. Happiness, the same thing. So do you think there'll ever be, you know, in the conclusion of this book, where do you see the light at the end of the tunnel in the modern world where we get past our addiction to covering up the symptoms versus the root causes? Well, I mean, man, that's a heavy question. <laughs> I threw it right at you. I told you we do the hard stuff first. It's, it's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, you've put your finger on it. Part of it is understanding what the really the root symptom is, and I agree. I mean, we, we too often um, uh, uh, cave into our instincts rather than thinking things through. You know, we use our fast brains rather than our slow brains, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, and... Um, and I think that we need, as a society, at a political level, at a sort of social level, you know, beyond just the individual level, have to come up with some uh, agreements about how we can help each other act in our own self-best interest. Because almost everybody knows that they should save more and spend less, right? Right. Doesn't know that. Almost everybody knows that we should try to prevent disease rather than simply treat disease once it occurs. But we we have a we're very very. Um, challenged because of our biology um, at doing that. You know, when you put the cake and the apple in front of somebody, almost everybody's going to go for the cake, not the apple. When you, when you, uh, so that's where we need, we need help helping our, each other. And I, I kind of like that general philosophy of, of sort of libertarian paternalism. I don't think we should take away people's choices, but give them choices in a way that helps them do what they'd actually want to do. Help them step back give them a little extra time to think, um, nudge them with taxes, whatever, uh, so that they do what they want to do without taking away their choices. And I think that's right. where as a society we need to go, um, preserve individual liberty and preserve freedom, but also help us make the right decisions. Look, I, I live in a, I'm in a, my building where I'm, where I, where I, where I, my office is, I'm on the fifth floor of the building and they're, they're tall floors, it's an old Victorian building. And um, every time I walk into the building, I want to take the elevator, I promise you. I mean, I'm no different from any other person on the planet. And, and I have not, I've forced myself to take the stairs, often not because um, I want to take the stairs, but if I've, I've harassed enough people about taking the stairs that if I were to take the elevator, right. I'd be called a hypocrite. Right. And so I've, I've, I've actually coerced myself through yeah. my, my social actions into taking the stairs on a regular basis. Um, I, when I go running, right, I, I love to run, <clears throat> but, um, um, you know, often I, well, the way I, one of the ways I, I manage to get my running up is to, um, I have a, a running partner and we, we email each other the night before and say, we're going to meet at six in the morning to go running. And I guarantee you almost every single morning we go running. I do not want to be out there at six in the morning, but, uh, if I don't go, I'll leave my friend stranded right. to go. And so we, we coerce each other. We need to find ways to to help each other and help ourselves in, in, in ways that, um, that, that, that benefit us all. And, and that's, a, that's a larger social issue. And, but it, its roots lie in, in understanding uh, why we are the way we are. And, of course, that comes from, from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah, the way, you know, Charlie Munger, the, the billionaire, he says that the human brain operates on, he's isolated, 
in his experience, about 25 cognitive biases that cause us to misjudge situations. And he says the dominant one is reward and pain. So what you're basically saying is you're uh, friend, doing a friendly hijack of your own brain using reward or pain. So you're going, if I take the stairs, I've set myself up to look like a hypocrite, which will bring me social pain. And I got to hang out with Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, the other month, last month, and, and what he did when he was young, he was really strong on his upper body and he had weak lower body, and he couldn't motivate. You know, most of us want to work on our strengths and not our weaknesses, but he wore really baggy shirts so you couldn't see his muscles on his upper body, so he hid his strengths, and then he highlighted his, he wore shorts to, so people could see his little chicken legs, and he said that he didn't want the pain of being embarrassed. So he said it didn't take me long of self-exposing myself to that pain that I started getting on the gym and just working on my legs. So I like that, that coercion type. In our office, maybe this is uh, the paternalistic libertarianism you're talking about. I'm slowly but surely taking away desks and replacing them with treadmill desks where people can walk at very low speeds, you know, 0.4 miles, but... In a day, that's three or four miles. And I found if you have no desk, you go on the treadmill. But if you have a treadmill and a desk, you spend a lot of time at the desk. So sometimes you just got to take the options away. It's like junk food in your house. I found you cannot have junk food at your house. It literally can never enter into your house or you'll eat it. Oh, exactly. And I think, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of shoppers know to go, they eat lunch before you go shopping and you make fewer, fewer, um, um, you know, um, uh, you buy fewer comfort foods and and, um, and cravings, you know, because you you know it's hungry. I mean, I think you know people learn. Some people learn these skills, and we need to help each other uh, learn those skills. And also, you know, we should use other social means too, like taxes. Right? Um, we tax the hell out of cigarettes and alcohol. Why don't we tax the hell out of you know sugary beverages, which are you know if, you know poisonous They're in in large doses? They're okay occasionally, but uh, nobody should drink soda on a regular basis it should be a treat and um uh, that's going to require um taxing uh, that's, I, I can't think of any other solution to that yeah. we're not going to remove soda that wouldn't be right either right well it wouldn't be pr- it'd be like the prohibition you try to remove alcohol or soda they're just going to be selling it you know on it's going to be al capone's going to be back Tub soda exactly <laughs> now let me one interesting thing in the book also speaking of the treadmill desks and walking can you go over a little bit how you know we're different at, at our knees and our hips from apes? I can, you talk about that, I think, in the book. And is your conclusion that walking is one of those big things that people well, are built I mean, I think to the do? Thing that, yeah, or I mean, evolved one of the to that do? Really sets us apart from an evolutionary perspective from our ancestors is being bipedal. And initially, that was walking. Um, so you know, apes. Apes can walk a little bit, and we have all sorts of adaptations to, to be walkers. But even more importantly, from my perspective, is that we became uh, athletes, endurance athletes, and also added running. So you know, your typical chimpanzee walks two to three uh, kilometers a day. So that's, you know, one and a half, two miles a day. That's all they do. Gorillas walk even less. Gorillas just basically sit in a giant salad bowl and, and eat the vegetation around them. Uh, a hunter-gatherer in Africa, you know, which is where we all used to be a few hundred generations ago, uh, a typical hunter-gatherer walks, um, you know, uh, five to ten miles every single day. Every single day, there are no holidays, there's no 
you know, um, there's no Sabbath or weekend or retirement or whatever. That's what everybody did every day, and they also had to run and throw and climb and dig. You know, they had to use their bodies as athletes because that's how they got dinner. That's how they survived. And um, so we have uh, our bodies have all kinds of features, adaptations that we evolved that make us uh, extremely good at walking and running and doing these various tasks. But also, interestingly, um, if you remove walking and vigorous exercise uh, from our physiology, um, we don't develop properly. We don't develop proper bones and proper muscles and proper brains and proper cardiovascular systems because because we require the, the demand that comes from all that walking and running in order to develop appropriate capacity. Now, how do you think it is with now when we run, we're often running on concrete. So it's like some of it's natural and then we throw ourselves in these natural, unnatural environments which kind of tweak the whole algorithm, you could say, because now you get the one step forward progress-wise and one step backwards. Obviously, if you can run at the park or run at the beach, you kind of avoid that. But do you see, I mean, there's all these... Oh, uh, there's- you know, there, there, are, there are challenges when, run, run, when you run on pavement or sidewalk. It basically, it's like a treadmill. Every step is the same as the other. And so you, you're more likely to get repetitive stress injuries, I think. Uh, right. You know, people actually, injuries from trail running are much lower than injuries from, from pavement running. Um, and um, and that people also run differently when they're wearing shoes than when they're barefoot because the shoe also cushions you if so you don't really know what you're doing. I'm not saying that you should necessarily run barefoot, but because uh, I think what matters is how you run, not what what's on your feet. But, um, but yeah, we've changed our environment in in a multitude of ways that affect how we use our bodies and how our bodies are um, you know get injured and developed. So, um, pavement is just one of them. Shoes are another. Um, you know, the the the, uh, the air conditioning in my building is changing my thermoregulation. I mean, there's so many things that we do, <clears throat> many of them which make us more comfortable, but since when is comfort necessarily good for you? Right. Now, do you teach this as a class? Do you have a class called The Story of the Human Body? or? Um, well, I teach a class called uh, Human Evolution and Human Health, okay. which, is, uh, which is more or less uh, um, somewhat like the book. And then I also teach a, a basic course in anatomy and physiology, how our bodies work. So based on you've got an incredible amount of experience and knowledge, and for yourself practically – one of the big, I mean, the, if you go into Barnes and Noble, by far the most dominant category of books is on health and diets. Yeah. What is your kind of high level, without, te- you know, not teaching your whole class, take on practical things we should be doing diet wise, besides obviously the obvious that, you know, the government tells us we should, USDA says don't have too much sugar and eat your is there are there any nuances that you found in all in your research uh that kind of enlighten you as you live your life diet wise well i think what's sort of fascinating is how many completely contrasting diets there are out there that claim to be healthy now how is it possible that a napkins diet or a paleo diet which is basically a high fat diet low carb diet how can that be healthy when also a, a vegan or a vegetarian diet is also healthy. Right. Now, that, that's confusing to most people. And I think the answer to that is that, you know, we didn't evolve to eat any one diet. We're actually pretty, are, are, you know, we're adapted to actually eating a wide range of things. And we can, we can actually thrive on, on different kinds of diets. Um, but the one thing that none of us can thrive on is, is um, 
um, heavily processed food with lots of sugar and very little fiber. Right. I think if there's any one thing that <clears throat> that unites all good diets is that they're <clears throat> they have a minimal amount of processed food, a minimum amount of food that's high in in, in simple carbohydrates like starch and and sugar, um, and um, and and lack fiber. And and uh, and if you can just you know. That's why eating healthy, lots of vegetables and fruits and and uh, is healthy. That's why not eating too much, you know, junk food is healthy. That's why you should avoid soda and 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 uh, and you know fruit juices, which are basically just sugar and water. Yeah, even fruit juice because there's this big a- fruit bar kind of push in the world, and it's like just have lots of fresh squeezed orange juice. But that still is something that's a sugar, sugar. Have the orange. <laughs> have the orange because the orange has fiber in it. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's some vitamins in the in the in the in the juice. But what you really want is that is all that stuff with the fiber. You know, the average American today gets only a few pounds of fiber a year in the, in his or her diet. The average hunter gatherer got like 40 pounds a year. Wow. Um, um, we even the U.S. RDA is, a, is 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 ridiculously fiber free compared to the diet that we evolved to eat. Now, that's, again, let's go back to that statement I made. We didn't evolve to be healthy, and having as much fiber as hunter-gatherers have might not be ideal either, but there's no question that the extreme that we've gone towards with no fiber is massively unhealthy because what happens is, for example, if you have uh, juice um, without uh, fiber, right, if you just have uh, juice, all the sugar in that juice more or less rushes straight into your bloodstream and you get a spike in blood sugar level. If you eat the apple instead of the eat, drink the apple juice or the, eat the orange instead of drink the orange juice, the fiber in the in the in the fruit slows the rate at which that sugar gets into your bloodstream, and your liver and your pancreas can handle uh, the rate and dose at a much more leisurely pace, and you don't go through these big swings of sugar and insulin, and 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 you know, your liver doesn't go into shock and turn all that. I mean, most most of us have what we call fatty liver syndrome. We we turning all the the fructose, the sugar in our fruit into or or the or the high fructose corn syrup into fat in our livers, which then cause us to have lots of belly fat and inflammation and diabetes and heart disease and all kinds of horrible, nasty things. Adding fiber to all that just completely changes the equation. Yeah, I read a, just read an interesting book about, the, it's written by, I forget his name right now, but he start, he's a head of a Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and he was talking, he pioneers these treadmill desks and talking about when you eat things that have a lot of sugar, how you get this tremendous spike. And one of the things in their research, uh, uh, anti-diabetes research, was moving right after you eat. So even a 15-minute leisure, leisurely walk immediately after eating cut the time uh, it took you to lower your blood sugar by about half. So you got your blood sugar uh, right down by just move, and it wasn't. And that's going back to this kind of hunter-gatherers walked and they moved and it wasn't eating and then just watching TV. Because now what you get, it's, it's it's like a triple whammy. You have people sitting, which were not evolved. Would you say anatomically, have you done any research on the actual sitting type position? Because we didn't have chairs in the savannah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're actually really fascinated with it. I think the, the big issue about sitting is it, it weakens your, it tightens your hip flexors has a lot of interesting implications, but it also makes your backs weak, and, and, and weak backs, we think, are a major contributor to lower back pain. So, um, so chairs are also, you know, chairs are comfortable, but, um, but they're also not necessarily good for us in excess. 
What happens when you tighten your hip flexors? What are some of the results? Oh, well, what, what, you end up you end up shifting the orientation of your pelvis, and then you have to, um, and then you end up having shift the orientation of your back, and then you get like back pain. Um, um, so tight tight hip flexors actually alter your your posture, um, and um, and can lead to sort of imbalances that are, you know, that many many physical therapists uh, think are. Contributors to um, to lower back pain. What about supplements? Any thoughts on your take on you know supplements beyond maybe just a multivitamin? Do you see things in your research where people are taking fatty acids? They're taking cod liver oil. They're they're taking higher protein dosages. You see coffee. There's all oh, yeah, kinds. It's a huge industry. Yeah, and um, you know I'm I'm not a I don't have strong opinions on that, apart from that, I mean, yeah, certainly there are supplements that you can take that are probably healthy and a lot that are probably completely unhealthy and nobody even knows what they do. Uh, you know, my, my again, my, my, my recommendation is just eat a healthy diet. You don't need to do any of that. <laughs> um, um, I mean, we, if you eat lots of, you know, fresh vegetables and fruit, which granted is not um, as expensive and not everybody can afford to do anymore, um, and try to eat, you know, healthy meats that aren't, you know, corn-fed um, uh, meats, which have lower nutrition than than, uh, than grass-fed meats. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, try not to eat too much, you know, processed food. You're you're already nine tenths of the way there. So, right. Um, again, and move, and a lot of movement. What do you think about germs? You talked a little bit about this. We used to be exposed to a lot more germs. And now we're washing our hands with antibacterial. And there's definitely been upsides of increasing sanitation, without a doubt. We don't have typhus anymore and cholera. And but do you think we've started to take it too far? I, there's no question. There's been a trade-off. So the question is, have we taken it too far, or is this an inevitable trade-off? And that's a tough question to answer. But um, our immune systems are are clearly adapted for. Um, for much less sterile conditions than we experience. I mean, you know, I'll make a bet you probably don't have any, any worms, you know, parasites in your gut, and you probably think that's normal, but actually from an evolutionary perspective, that's abnormal. And, you, um, and, um, and, and that may alter your, for example, probability of, of developing an autoimmune disease or, or an allergy. Um, and, um, you mean because we don't have parasites that might... Because our immune system just is going to start... Huh. Still doing what it's supposed to do, but now it doesn't have anything to do anymore. So the analogy I use is sometimes like a teenager hanging around on a street corner, and you know it's got something to do with all that energy. And it, instead of you know using it for some positive purpose, it ends up making a mistake and doing something inappropriate, like attacking your own cells in your body. So like or, lupus or analogy or things like that. Yeah, or peanuts are somehow bad, rather when they're, of course they're not. So so huh. we you know what we don't understand is to what extent we can. Um, uh, uh, you know, have the, the best of both worlds. You know, h- how much can we can we uh, continue to sanitize our environment and decrease the chances of diarrhea and other kinds of nasty infections? That that are no, there's no question that they're, you know, we're much better off for all the sanitation we have today. But there's no question also that we are beginning to pay a price for that. And maybe there's a happy medium. Or maybe we can start using an evolutionary perspective to start treating some of these diseases. Uh, the, the, the poster child for this is, uh, is, is uh, C. difficile. It's a bacterium that, um, that causes this horrible uh, uh, 
inflammation of the bowels and can kill people. And actually, there's a 90% cure rate um, of by giving people fecal transplants. So, so if you actually you can because your 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 gut has you know trillions of or, microorganisms that normally live there, and we we often kill them with antibiotics. And some of them sometimes that causes us to have a have a very abnormal gut microbiome. You know, the, the, the microbes in our gut. And by restoring that microbiome, we can actually cure ourselves from some really, really terrible diseases. Now, when you say fecal transplant, are you saying taking someone else's feces and putting it in you, in your own body? Oh, people do that already. Actually, it's the number one treatment now for um, for 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 uh, certain uh, um, intestinal disorders, and extremely effective. Huh? That's fascinating. All right, as we kind of wrap up here, two two closing questions for you. I just saw this movie uh, with well, Ben Kingsley and it's about life extension and all the places we're going. It brings up the ethical questions of picking your children to not have def- genetic defects and all this. And What did you see let's specifically talk on life extension. You know, uh, Dr. David Buss and uh, Richard Dawkins, they talk about things, ESS, evolutionarily stable strategies, meaning everything has a trade-off, like you said. We, we wash our hands more, but then we mess up the biome in, in our bodies. We take antibiotics so we don't die of a, of a cut, but there's this trade-off. We get this other ailment. In So this ESS is the... Is kind of like Aristotle, you know, to be angry is easy, but to be angry at the right time, at the right person, for the right reason, that's difficult. So it's that balance that's hard. We know we're already going towards some level of life extension just by having antibiotics, and most of our healthcare costs is people living five years longer in old folks' homes and all this, but do you see light at the end of the tunnel for us using evolutionary uh, understandings of our body and being able to find the balance and really live longer and healthier without too many trade-offs? Or do you think it's always like this? We're just going to be having sugar and going on treadmill, I mean, going on the escalator, not the stairs. Well, I think that um, that's a great question. And I, obviously I don't know the answer, <laughs> but because um, it's too too complicated a question. But, you know, we, we evolved to, to senesce, to grow old and, and to die. That's an, actually an evolutionary stable strategy. And sometimes the way in which we, we fight that or ignore that uh, causes us, causes more misery than, than, um, than not. I, I, I think that, you know, my, my goal is that, um, um, you know, I'd like to add more, more life to my years than years to my life, although I wouldn't mind both, right? And, um, one of the things that's happened because of the various mismatched diseases that we, we suffer from now is that we've, we've got what's called a, uh, an extension of morbidity. Morbidity is illness, not, not mortality. And, and the data show pretty clearly that over the, as, as people have gotten to live longer, more of those years, they're infirm. You know, they've got chronic diseases, diabetes, osteoporosis, uh, heart disease, etc., that not only cost us a lot, but also cause enormous amount of misery. And, and but what evolutionary biology tells us is that by, um, by developing our bodies better and by using our bodies um, more as they're adapted, um, we can decrease that period of morbidity uh, prior to our mortality and have 
have a, have a compression of morbidity and, an, um, and along with an extension of life. I'll give you an example. We know that um, you know, every textbook, medical textbook, says that um, um, it's natural and normal for blood pressure to go up with age. Okay. When you're young, you have low blood pressure, and as you get older, your arteries harden and, get, and, get, um, and you become hypertensive. Well, actually, that's not true. Um, there are plenty of studies from, from non-Western populations that don't live the kinds of lifestyles that we do, which show that when people live into their 70s and 80s, their blood pressure is no different from when they were in their 20s. Hmm. And that's because of diet and exercise. We, these are not, um, um, they, they don't have heart disease. They don't have osteoporosis. They don't have diabetes. They have other problems. They're not, you know, there's, there's no Shangri-La out there. Or right, they lose their teeth or something like that. They lose their teeth. There are all kinds of problems. They get pneumonia. They get infectious diseases. But um, we've just sort of uh, swapped one set of diseases for another set of diseases. And, and, in, and in so doing, by changing our lives, also increased our mor- our morbidity and and that doesn't have to happen that way and I think by paying attention to uh, evolutionary biology um, we can do a better job of of not only extending life but also increasing the quality of that life. All right, last question. Pretend today hypothetically is your last day on planet Earth. You've got to leave. You've got time to leave one little thirty second or sixty second piece of advice you'd want to leave with your family, your kids, humanity, the one bang for the buck, somewhat practical, somewhat philosophical piece of advice, what would it be? Off the top of your head, obviously. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I, can I have two or instead of one? Sure. <laughs> uh, um, I would say, you know, don't eat sugar and get plenty of exercise. That's it. I, I like that. That's short. That was like seven seconds. I mean, it's not, I mean, it doesn't guarantee you perfect health, um, but, but um, the absence of those choices, right, you know, eating too much sugar and refined food and not getting enough exercise more or less guarantees you ill health at some point. Now, sugar, I was reading, you know, there's different uh, thresholds. I've seen 25 grams of sugar ideally a day. I've seen 25 grams in addition to fruit. So if you have a lot of fruit, you could might spike up. Have you seen any practical... Do you follow any practical guidelines? It, it's probably pretty tough to go to zero sugar just because, you know, everything has some level of sugar. Is there a threshold you've seen in your research that, like my friend says, eat protein that's about the size of your hand, have about that much meat per plate. That's his little threshold. Do you have kind of a threshold? No, I mean, I just... Uh, I just um I, you know, there's no such thing as a, as a, as a threshold. I mean, everything's on a dose-response curve, and, and there are trade-offs to everything, and sugar's one of them. I mean, you know, I, I'm a runner, right? I love to run a lot. And, um, you know, uh, you know I, sometimes, I, you know, sometimes I need carbohydrates in order to run. Uh, otherwise, I'm not going to be able to make it, right? So everything has trade-offs, and I think just uh, we all know when we're having too much sugar. Um, we all know that, that, you know, chocolate. I had chocolate cake for dessert last night. You know, we went... Um, and I probably shouldn't have had it, but I, you know, it looked good and it tasted great. <laughs> now, I'm not going to remove all pleasure from my life, uh, but I try to be, you know, moderate about it. And I, I so I'm. It's like uh, not into. I'm not into coming up with numbers for this sort of thing. I just I, we just need to we just need to exercise caution and and moderation and. Um, 
act out and, and you know, make everything a health decision. Um, you know, should I have coffee in the morning? Is that a health decision? I mean, uh, I just like coffee. Um, and um, sometimes we should do things because we like them. But just be mindful of the trade-offs that they that they um, that they provide. And, and my mom used to say, "It's well, not what you eat." People go mad. Yeah, my mom used to say, "It's not what you eat or do ten percent of the time that kills you. It's what you do ninety percent." So optimize for the majority of your diet, and then it'll be like the uh, Supreme Court. They were asked one of the the Supreme Court justices. They were saying, well, if we outlaw this kind of art, then, you know, what is porn? Then we'll be outlawing everything. And she said, well, the definition of porn is you'll know it when you see it. So kind of the definition of too much <laughs> sugar is probably, you probably know if you're having too much sugar. One little bonus thing that I forgot here, or a bonus for me to hear your opinion, and then we'll wrap up. I talked to this, or I read this book, Inheritance, by Dr. Sharon Molum, and talked to him on the phone and he basically says what he sees the future also, and it's not quite here yet because DNA testing isn't quite good enough. I did my DNA test and found out my ethnicity on 23andMe, but they don't quite know how to apply it to diet. But he thinks that in the future it'll basically be you'll swab your saliva, they'll decode your DNA, and they'll be like, you know, this person's a little better as a vegetarian, this person's a little better uh, so it's a customized diet approach. Do you see something like that making sense? Just because, like you said, not everybody. Some people seem to do better on vegetarian, and some people don't. Um, uh, you know, I think that maybe to a small extent. But you know, uh, if you were to, you know, exterminate all the world except for you know Australia or Lithuania or you know, take your pick of some population, you'd still have eighty-six percent of all the genetic variants that exist on the planet. We're all basically the same. And furthermore. When you look at the genetic basis for diseases, um, most of the complex diseases that we care about that are going to kill us, like heart disease and cancer and whatever, you know, what makes you more likely to get the disease, uh, genes that you, know, you can identify, are not going to be the same that makes you know, me or, or, or the person in the room next door. Most of the genes that are <clears throat> explain these diseases are, are, are very rare. There are many of them, and we all have different combinations of them, and most of them have very, explain very little of the variants which is one of the reasons why we're never going to find any blockbuster drugs for, for most of these diseases. The fact of the matter is that most of us are pretty much basically the same. You, know, you can marry anybody on the planet and have healthy offspring with them. Um, you know, um, we're, our, our, I, I don't think that this kind of high-tech solution uh, based on, on genetics and, you know, uh, is really going to um, uh, solve some of the, the problems that we really care about now. Um, what we really should do is you know, your mother was right, you know, and, I, and most of our mothers knew exactly what we should be doing. Uh, it's not that difficult. Our problem is, again, not so much scientific, it's really political. Um, right. How do we help our kids? How do we help our kids eat healthy diets? We all know what a healthy diet is. You don't need me to tell you. We all know that exercise is important. I mean, uh, you don't need me to tell you that. But why is it that, you know, our kids are sedentary and eat too much sugar and and, um, and, you know, have, there's no physical education in school. And, and um, you know, 50% of the veg vegetables eaten by American children are French fries. And, you know, the list goes on. Those are political issues. Right. And, and, um, and I think rather than genotyping everybody and hoping that's going to solve it, you know, we really need to uh, work on the, the, the root cause of the problem, which is that, you know, a lot of people are out there making a lot of money on exploiting our, 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 our instincts, our cravings for comfort and sugar and fat and um and um and we're letting them get away with it yeah and i think 
I would add to that media. The media has power over what people see. It has power over young people, what they want to aspire to be. So media and private enterprise, like you said, there's. I hope there'll be media. We're working on that as part of this effort we call the Knowledge Society, uh, where you really push things that make sense for people. Everything doesn't have to be lowest common denominator food, doesn't have to be lowest common denominator TV, and, and those things influence us too. So I would add that to politics, private enterprise and uh, media, you know. I don't agree, disagree at all. I completely agree. Well, awesome. So everybody listening in, go out. It's a great book, The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. Daniel Lieberman, thanks so much for being here, and uh, I hope to uh, meet you one time in person. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right, Maya, I'm going to hand you over here to Maya, but thanks. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'll take you off speaker here. Sure, thanks so much. Yeah, well, I uh, are you ever out in California? Yeah, I do come out occasionally. Um, 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 I, am, I have to go off into San Francisco because I'm on the board of the Leakey Foundation. And, oh, really? You know, I, I end up in L.A. every once in a while, but uh, I was actually just out there a few months ago collecting data on some runners, but didn't know that you were trying to interview me, so sorry we missed that. Yeah, well, maybe we'll do a follow-up. I'm sure people will like this one, and... Uh, I'm going to do a conference here. I'm not sure when. Probably next year. But uh, if you're ever open to being a speaker, I'm sure people would love to hear you. And, and Maya will kind of keep you in the loop if you're ever available. Uh, sometimes. I mean, it's a you know, crazy schedule. And, um, I, I can't do a lot of the invitations that I get. But I'll but I try. Awesome. Writing 40 pages All right. paper, so. Here's Maya. And thanks so much. Again, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right.